Heavenly Father, we come before you. Once again, Lord, we, we turn to your word because we know that it is what we need. We know that it is truth, instruction. We know that it reveals your will. It reveals your character. And Father, most of all, it exposes our need for you. So as we turn to your word, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom, and that you would give us courage to obey and follow, that we might be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at uh, Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and the title for the sermon is Sin Brings Confrontation. And I chose that word not only because the Lord gave it to me, but because that word brings with it its own connotations. Confrontation is a word most of us are not comfortable with. If I were to have everybody raise their hand, which I won't, but I guarantee you not many people are going to raise their hand and say, you know what? I love confrontation. My favorite part of my day, my favorite part of life, confronting. Many people avoid confrontations because it makes us feel uneasy. However, Without confrontation, conflict would have no resolution. And therefore, we would just be this ball of turmoil, tension, and just unresolved issues. Confrontation is necessary to improve the quality of our relationships with one another. Confrontation allows for honesty and transparency between relating parties. People who are non-confrontational, when they get irritated, irked, or bothered by something that somebody does, says, or how they are treated, they go, oh, no, it's okay. It's fine. And later at home, they're like, can you believe what they did? Can you believe what they said? And, and I remember my, very distinctly my, my dad, he had this vein that went right here, and whenever he would get upset, like that vein... Uh, I thought for sure he'd have an aneurysm. That's what happens when we have unresolved conflict and tension and, went, and, and whatnot. We, we bite our tongues. We give our best poker face when we're hurt and offended. But without confrontation, what happens is bitterness and resentment take root in our heart. Now, a mature relationship is one in which confrontation happens regularly as needed. Which brings me to the point is God desires relationship with us as his people. He specifically called Israel into special relationship with him, and that's what Amos is speaking to. But it rings true for us today as the church. God desires relationship. It's the whole reason he sent his son to die on the cross. In that relationship, God has outlined sin as that which he will not approve of and will not tolerate. When Israel sins, God confronts it. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Amos' second message is to Israel, and it's about God confronting their blatant sin that's grieving him and ruining the kingdom of Israel. Israel is guilty of sins such as luxury, hypocrisy, and obstinacy. They're living for the wrong things. Their worship is empty. It's false. And what's worse is they repeatedly refuse to receive the correction. 
And so their sin, what's going to happen, God is going to show them, you choose to sin, sin brings confrontation. I want this to be a warning. I believe God is speaking it to us this morning as a warning. Our sin will bring confrontation. And I believe that through this message that the Lord speaks to Israel, we can also see what that means for us. So starting in verse 1, if you'll follow along with me, it says, listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through the breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thanksgiving sacrifice and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city and no rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew. The locust devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from a fire. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, Israel... This is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here, the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to man, the one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. Sin brings confrontation. And as God reveals, it brings confrontation in our lifestyles. Go back to the first three verses. Let's look at the lifestyles that God is confronting. He says, listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through the breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. So Amos, again, in his second message, his second sermon to the Israelites, he says, listen to this message, heed it, pay attention to it, gather the warning from it. And he says it's imperative to listen up and heed the words. 
And the first group that Amos is speaking to is the women of Israel. And he has a, a tender name that he calls them. He says, you cows of Bashan. Now, in our vernacular today, that would not be acceptable. But I guarantee you, in that day, it was not acceptable either. But Amos did not go to school to learn how to speak eloquently and politically correct. He was a herdsman and a farmer. And so he speaks with what his knowledge is and what the Lord gives him to get his point across. Now, the cows of Bashan, they were cows that were well-fed, yet remained unmanageable. Known for being fat and healthy. That's what Amos called the women. And yet somehow he survived after that. In Psalm 22, verse 12, it says, Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. It speaks of the, these herds being of good strength or speaking towards their health and their, and their girth. In Ezekiel 39, 18, the prophet also speaks. He says, you will eat the flesh of the mighty men and drink the blood of the earth's princes, rams, lambs, male goats, and all the fattened bulls of Bashan. In fact, every time animals in Bashan are mentioned, it's all about the fatness. So Amos is saying, listen up, you fattened cows. Now, there's a truth in today, the skinny ideal that we relegate towards female beauty, that's a new modern thing. Plumpness in ancient times was valued as a sign of affluence and, and being well taken care of. But I, I read this from Guzik, and I'm going to agree with him. Guzik says, I can confidently believe that no woman ever, no matter what time, at any time, in the course of all history, ever desires to be called a fat cow. Never is that an acceptable thing to say. So needless to say, Amos's words stung, and they hit the heart, and they offended like they were meant to. So now that Amos has all the glaring attention on him, he says, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Women who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. And this isn't just saying, hey, hey, honey, can you get me some water, please? I'm really thirsty. My throat's parched. That's not what he's talking about. These rich women, like the cows of Bashan, were being equally pampered and fattened off of the finer things of life. And interesting to note that when they ask their husbands for a drink, it's not the traditional word that's used for husband. It's a rare word that you find in Hebrew that refers to the husband as Lord and Master. I read a sort of scorn from Amos. I mean, after he uses the term fattened cows and then he calls the husbands like Lord and Master, I, I, I sense that he's a little sarcastic. Because he's talking to the husbands, and what he's saying is, you're supposedly lords and masters, but you're obeying as meek servants in order to provide what your wives are demanding, and here's how you're providing. You're exploiting the poor. You're crushing the needy. And so, while it looks like his words are directed only at the women, I want you to understand it's also towards the men. He's saying all of you are living in such a way because you're crushing the poor and the needy. You're exploiting them. You're living off of their pain and their suffering. 
I want to I want to point out it, it, it's very imperative that we hear this that the point of the confrontation is not because they're affluent. It's not because they have the finer things. It's because of how their wealth came. And the Lord is going to bless some to be wealthy, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But those who the Lord doesn't bless to be wealthy, when they seek to be wealthy, and they do it by any means necessary, saying the ends justify the means, and they say, don't worry, when I am done ripping everybody off and I have all this money, Lord, I'll use all that money for you. And God is like, no, that's okay. I don't need that. When your wealth comes by oppressing and crushing the poor and needy, that's when your affluence becomes the selfish pursuit of pleasure. And it becomes a lifestyle sentence of sin. What's luxury? Can we live in luxury? Luxury comes from a Latin word meaning excessive. It was originally used to plants that grew abundantly. So like you would go to like the rainforest and you would say, the luxury of all the trees. That's very luxurious. But it came to refer to people who have an abundance, an abundance of money, an abundance of time, an abundance of comfort, which they specifically spend and use only for themselves. Deluxe service. Whenever you go somewhere, um, the only thing that comes to mind is the car wash. You go through the car wash, you have regular service. Nobody ever chooses that one because it's just regular. Then you get the, the deluxe service. That's what everybody goes for because it sounds so luxurious. The deluxe service. Derived from the same Latin word means service above and beyond what is really needed. Is luxury a sin? It's not a sin to have riches and comfort in life. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to find that it's a sin to have riches and comfort in life if God has given it to you. Abraham, the one who earned favor with God through his faith. I shouldn't say earned favor. He was given favor from God because he had faith in God. David, king of Israel at the, the richest time in the, all of the nation's history until his son Solomon who tripled and doubled and quadrupled that wealth. They were both wealthy men. They had everything that they ever wanted and or needed. But here's the difference. They chose to use that wealth for the glory of God. There was a time where David wanted to build the temple for the Lord, and the Lord said, you can't. You have blood on your hands. He's like, well, then I'll at least provide the plot for it. And so he went out to buy a field, and the guy that was selling the field says, no, 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 no. You're the king. I want to give it to you. And David, what did he say? I will not provide for the Lord that which cost me nothing. He took his wealth and he spent it for the glory of God. We may not think that we live in luxury today. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you, you know what? This is not me at all because I've looked at my bank account and I see the zero. Or maybe there's a little, uh, one of those little hyphens next to it in front. That doesn't mean that that, 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 that money's, it means you're in the negatives and that's, you know, some of us find ourselves there when, you know, things happen. And we go, I do not live in luxury. I want to change all of our mindset. And I want you, every single one of you in this room that lives in America, we live in luxury. Here's what luxury is described as when you compare it with third world countries. Thermostatically controlled environments. 
Here in this room right now, we have a thermostat that controls the environment. It can actually turn on the heat or the air. Some of you probably wish we would do it more or less, depending on where you're at. We can do it remotely also. I can do it from the comfort of my phone in, in my car or at home. I can change the temperature here in this room. We have refrigerators. I, I almost guarantee you, every single one of us in our house, we have refrigerators. Whether it's running or not, I don't know. That we used to call people and ask them to make sure that their refrigerator was running. I don't think anybody does that anymore to check if the refrigerator is running. We have automobiles. Some of us have more than one automobile. We have top-of-the-line medical care in most places. We have telephones, cell phones, electricity, running water. We have complete and total access to fuel for now. We all live in luxury. The sin of luxury and a lifestyle of luxury is not in owning or having abundance, but in using what we have for ourselves only as we ignore the desperate need of others. The sin of luxury is using what we have irresponsibly instead of for God's glory. So God saw these women living this lifestyle and he promised, he said, I will confront it. And the Lord has sworn. He said, I swear in my holiness. He's promising according to his holiness. His holiness demands that injustice of sinful lifestyles are confronted. He says, the days are coming where you will be dragged away by fish hooks, led in a straight line through the breaches in the walls, and driven toward Harman. Now, that word Harman Everywhere in the Hebrew that I looked for it, they said it more than likely refers to a place called Hermon, which would be a mountain at the northern tip of the Bashan region of Assyria. And so God tells unrepentant Israel they're coming agony from the Assyrians. When the Assyrians depopulated and exiled a conquered community, what they would do is they would take their captives on long journeys, single file, with a rope that would go from one to the next through a fish hook that was pierced through their lip. The captives would be naked, attached together. Many of them would not make the journey. The Lord is saying, you fat cows of Bashan, you will be humbled on your way to Bashan. You want Bashan? You'll get it. You want to be sinful? You will go live in the sinful community. And, he, and, and this is how he sings it. He says, this is the Lord's declaration. I was like, wow, that's an interesting phrase, right? This is the Lord's declaration. That's like five words. In the Hebrew, it's one. And it's not even a full word because all the vowels were removed from it. It just says Y-H-W-H. The Tetragrammaton, which is the proper name of God. The most accurate translation of it would be Yahweh or Jehovah. Those are the two popular likelihoods of how it's said. And basically what it is, is at the end of all this, where he says, you will be carried away to Bashan, he signs his name as if done deal, signed and dotted it's going. And what we're going to see is throughout this chapter of Amos, he signs his name after everything he says. Everywhere where you see this is the Lord's declaration, it's just the Lord signing YHWH. That's the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, who should I say sent me? He says, I am that I am. 
Yahweh. God says that sin must be confronted and he will confront the lifestyle. He will also confront in our vain worship. Look at verses four and five. In verse four, Amos continues, he says, come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thanksgiving sacrifice and loudly proclaim your freewill offerings. For this is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Amos is continuing in his message. Again, I don't know if it was inspired by the Lord God or it was just the personality of Amos. He seems like a, a really fun guy to be around if, he, if you're on his bad side. This is what he's doing. He's making a sarcastic call for the nation, a sarcastic call to worship. He says, come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bethel is the place rich with history of the worship of God. It was a meeting place with God. And then Gilgal was the place of memorial. When they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, they went through Gilgal. They set up the memorial stones there so that they can remember what the Lord God had done for them there. Gilgal became where Israel also had their prophets go. They would go and they would live there and they would learn how to be prophets. Not learn how to give prophecy, but learn the scripture of the Lord that they already had. Learn the traditions, learn, learn what it was to obey the Lord. Now, however, Bethel and Gilgal have become places for Blatant idolatry, false, vain, empty worship. And so Amos basically gave a parody of a priest's summon because the priests, what they would do is when it was time to worship, they would do like Psalm 95. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. Or Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. But Amos says, come, rebel. The kings of Israel set up Bethel and Gilgal as rival worship centers so that their people would never ever again have to go to Jerusalem where the Lord said, that's where you'll worship me. They can offer sacrifices supposedly to the Lord, but... Um, they had a golden calf there, so I, I, I very seriously doubt it, considering the Lord said, you shall not make any graven images, nor bow down to any other God but me. The worship and offerings to God were not made in accordance with his request, with his word, and therefore the worship is empty, vain, and even downright sinful. Worship is not true worship just because it is done. It has to be done in obedience or it's just rebellion. Some people create a God in their own mind that they can handle, that they can worship, that they can love. When we do that, we're not worshiping and loving God. We're just rebelling. Amos tells them, he says, bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tents every three days. Now, we're tents. We probably all just instantly think tents, and we're like, oh, tithe. That's where it comes from. 
The tithe, however, was only offered every three years. And here's what the tithe was for. It was to assist the poor. Amos is saying, sacrifice every day. Bring your tithes every three days. He's saying, do whatever you want. Do it to the abundance. Do it over and above what's required. And guess what? You know what happens when you worship in rebellion and you just do more and more and more of it? You don't get any closer to God. You just pile on the rebellion. It doesn't matter how much you do, he says. It's all an outward show. And that's the problem. In worship, it's not the outward that matters. God doesn't care what you bring necessarily to to come and worship. That's why you had different things. You could bring a fattened uh, bull. You could bring a lamb. You could bring two turtle doves. Because that was the sacrifice that was acceptable for those who are poor. Because God said, to worship me, you don't have to go bankrupt. I want your heart, not your sacrifice. If only the outward mattered, I'm sorry, it's not worship, it's the out, it, it, in worship it's not the outward that matters, it's the inward, it's your heart. If only the outward is offered and not the heart, if you don't, if you, you can bring whatever you want, you don't bring your heart to God, it's all vain, it's all empty. God wants our hearts. Amos continues, he says, offer leavened bread as a Thanksgiving sacrifice. Thanksgiving sacrifice is a sacrifice that was given in acknowledgement of the provision of the hand of God. And Amos mocks that with a corrupt offering because leaven is what? It's a representative of sin. He says, go ahead, offer your sacrifice of sin to the Lord. And then he says, loudly proclaim your free will offering. Now, a free will offering was that exactly how it sounds. It was of your free will. You didn't have to bring it. But you also weren't supposed to loudly announce it. You weren't supposed to go, look what I brought for the Lord today and slam it in there. But that's what Israel was doing because they thought that the outward mattered more. Free will offering was freely offered, born of your inner devotion to God. So Amos calls them to go to Bethel and Gilgal. He says, sin more, keep sinning, Be, be vain, continue with your hypocritical worship. That's what you Israelites love to do. And remember, he's speaking the word of the Lord. The Lord is saying this. You love it. They're, they're, not, they're not accidentally sinning. They're not accidentally doing it. They love to do this. They live for it. He says, you love your false worship. And it isn't done for God. It's done for show. It's nothing more than an elaborate sham. Their corrupted worship, disobedient in heart and action, but they loved it. Do not mistakenly measure worship in regard to how it makes us feel or how it pleases us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, I didn't really care for worship too much. It it just didn't do anything for me. Great, worship's not for you. It is totally possible for corrupt and disobedient worship to be wonderfully pleasing to our deceiving hearts. We can think, wow, I felt really close to God and God is going, you weren't, where were you today? I didn't see you today. Now to be fair, worship doesn't have to hurt to be acceptable either. 
It doesn't have to be like, wow, this is really painfully boring. I'm so glad. I, I hope you, you know, that doesn't make worship any better either. It's allowed to be pleasing, but that should not be the defining mark. If we want to have true worship, that is not empty or vain. Authentic worship is measured accurately by how it honors and pleases God. That's why it has to be according to his prescribed definition, his prescribed method, his prescribed meaning. And what he says is he's all, I don't even desire your sacrifices. I don't just, it's all a stench to me. What I want is a contrite heart. You want to worship God authentically? Give him your heart that is broken and torn over your sin that is calling out to him for help. That's what he wants. He says, this is the Lord's declaration. They love their worship, but they're not worshiping God. Sin brings confrontation also when we refuse discipline. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11. And the Lord's going to mention several times he disciplined the nation and what their response was to it. Verse 6, he says, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I also withheld rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew and locusts covered your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. God brought various chastisements against his people with the express desire to bring them back to himself. Sometimes we think that God is like that kid that we see at the top of an anthill with the magnifying glass going, ha ha, ooh, I like to see them suffer. It's not God. When troubles come in our life as we follow God, what usually what it is, is if it's discipline, he wants to turn us back to him. He's saying, don't keep going this way. All you're going to find is trouble. You need to turn back. And with each punishment that is listed in these verses, I want you to see God anticipated repentance. Every time he says, yet you did not return to me. Israel refused with obstinance. Persistent obstinacy has to be confronted. And as it's confronted, the continual refusal becomes accumulated guilt. God says, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities. They were starving. They didn't even think, maybe we should pray to God. 
Maybe we should turn back to God. Maybe God is upset with us. They didn't think that. He says, I withheld the rain from you for three months, or while three months remained until harvest. He said, in fact, I even did it like this. I sent rain on one city, no rain on another. I sent rain on one field and not on another. Two or three cities would stagger to, to another city to drink water, and they were not satisfied. There was no water to drink. He says, even in those things where there was water here, there was no water here, and it just seemed ran, and, 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 and that it seemed specific that it would skip certain fields. He says, yeah, you didn't return to me. Then he says, I struck you with blight. I had to look up what that was because I didn't know. Um, if you have a green thumb, you probably know what that is. But it is a scorching and a burning. It's a plant disease where there's withering, but no rotting. And then he says, and I sent mildew and the locust, the swarming locust. And it devoured all your gardens, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees. Usually in a major calamity like that, what people do is they go, you know what? Maybe we need to turn back to God. He says, yet you did not return to me. He says, I even sent you plagues like those of Egypt. Seeing the plagues of Egypt, the first thing you go to is, wow, they're under judgment. When it's you, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm under judgment. And I know this for a fact because at the church that I came from uh, on the west side, Sen City, we had some plagues that were exactly like those of Egypt, and we're like, oh no, what did we do? I mean, we, we had a, a swarm of locusts that was so bad, like one of the main buildings on their property is a cream-colored building. When we showed up for church that day, it was black. I was like, wow, they repainted. It was swarming with locusts. Another time we came, the kids had a lot of fun on the day. It rained like terribly. They picked up cups of tadpoles. That was great. It was so, tadpoles are so much fun. Two weeks later, they brought the cups back filled with frogs, dumping them out again. We had so many frogs, you couldn't walk without stepping on frogs. And we were like, oh no, we're under judgment. This far removed from that, Israel having been closer to it, they should have seen it was judgment, but they did not. These were not demonstrations of God's desire to destroy Israel in wrath and anger. It's his love that desired to turn their hearts back to him. And that's God's love. It'll discipline us, and it starts small. And he'll increase the discipline is necessary to get our attention and call us back to him. And so he says, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You are like a burning stick snatched from a fire in how I rescued you and prevented your utter calamity. Yet you did not return to me. Proverbs 3.11, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son. Do not loathe his discipline. The Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. And we turn to Hebrews and we get a better explanation of this proverb. And it says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you're reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? They disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. 
No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, and everybody who was ever a child that's been disciplined can agree to this. It's never enjoyable. And that what always makes us laugh when our dad says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I don't think so. <laughs> it's painful. But later on, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord desires to confront and discipline to bring his sons back to him. Israel wasn't receiving the message. My question that the Lord asked me, the question that I'm presenting to you is, are we receiving or will we receive the message when it's our turn? Is God disciplining you in your life right now? Maybe you're feeling like, you know what? A lot of this describes how I am. I have no food to eat. I have no, I'm just kidding. He disciplines us in other ways. If, we, if, if maybe God is speaking to you that you're under discipline, if you're feeling like that's possible, I would recommend, if so, let it bring you back to him in repentance. Because when God confronts sin, you're made to prepare to meet your God. And that's what he says in verse 12. He says, therefore, Israel, this is what, that is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here. He's the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies is his name. He says, you refuse to come back. You continue to be obstinate. You refuse to turn away from your sin. He's speaking to Israel. He says, because of that, therefore, this is what I'll do to you. You're going to be overthrown like I did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Israel, prepare to meet your God. And I would say that for us this morning, are we prepared to meet God? And there's three ways that we can apply, or a couple of ways to apply this. There's two ways. First, it's almost like a challenge. God inviting his enemies to prepare to meet him. You want to fight against me? All right, let's meet. Behind the school, in the parking lot, let's go outside. As a fighter prepares to step into the ring with their opponent, you, you, you would study your opponent. You would, you would learn the techniques necessary. You would do everything you can to prepare. But God is saying, you want to enter the ring with me, you better go prepare. Maybe Amos is being ironic and calling the staunch rebels to take up arms against the God whom they've despised. You want to fight against them so much? Go get your arms and go meet God. See how you fare in that one. Fight it out with the one whom you made your enemy by your continued sinful, unrepentant acts. The other thing that I hear is kind of what I would call a summon. Because there is a day coming when we will all give an account as we stand before God. And I believe that Amos is saying, consider who it is who you will be meeting. Consider who it is who you've been offending. And he, and he, he describes him for us. He says he's here. Whether you realize it or not right now, God is here because he's omnipresent. There is nowhere you can go where God is not. And he's not just a God that you can 
be like, I, I don't have to worry about it. He's the one who forms mountains. He creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to men. He's the one who makes the dawn out of darkness. And I think if we can focus in anywhere, I want to focus in on that. Amos says he reveals his thoughts to man. Hear what he's saying. He's revealing his thoughts. Sin will be confronted. Are you prepared to meet God? He's the one who makes the dawn out of darkness. Or as we read in other uh, books of the New Testament, he brings beauty from the ashes. The mess, the destruction that our life is, he is the God who can bring that out. And in case you forget his strength, he says, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of armies, Yahweh Elohim Salah, the Lord God, the God of armies, the God of hosts, the God of assembly. There's three sins that they mention with the Israel, the sin of luxury, the sin of hypocrisy, and the sin of obstinacy. The nation of Israel is under that judgment. I say it a lot, and I don't want us to be all down in the dumps about it, but I believe America is guilty of the same sins. I believe the church is guilty of the same sins. He says, yet you have not returned to me. That's the greatest tragedy. Everyone will stumble in sin, but are we receiving the correcting hand of God? We need to be aware that we fall in sin, feel the hand of God, yet obstinately refuse to take it. Prepare to meet your God. Sin requires confrontation. Confrontation is a face-to-face -face meeting. Prepare to meet your God because sin must be confronted. You can prepare to meet God by turning back to him in repentance for sin, receive his loving correction and his discipline. Or you can continue in your sin, ignore God's loving correction, and meet him in confrontation of your sin instead of loving correction. It will be in righteous and holy indignation as the Lord God of armies. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, as it is appointed for people to die once after this judgment. How will you prepare to meet your God? In repentance and forgiveness? or obstinate rebellion receiving just judgment. Jesus came and died on the cross so we could receive forgiveness through him and be prepared to meet our God clothed in his righteousness and forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, we're prepared to meet God, no longer his enemies, but his children. Only those who repent of their sin and come to Jesus and believe in his salvation will receive forgiveness and be clothed in his righteousness. To come to God any other way is to stand as his opponent. As we close, as the worship team comes up, I'm going to call all of us 
to allow God to speak to our heart. Maybe he's been trying to discipline us. Maybe he's been trying to reach us. Maybe we just haven't heard, but he's saying it now and he's saying it clear. Listen to this message as Amos said. Are you prepared to meet your God? Are you living in in luxury that denies the needs of others around you? Where you have to lift up your head so you can't see the suffering around you so that you can enjoy the comforts of life at the expense of others? Are you living in empty, vain worship where you come and you proclaim the Lord's name with your voice? but your hearts are far from him. Has he been calling you back and you've been avoiding, you've been making excuses, you've been denying, you've been pushing him away, you've been saying, not yet, maybe later, not now, I'm not ready. We don't know when, but we do know that it is appointed unless Christ comes back first and takes us in the rapture. All are appointed to die once. And then the judgment. Those who are in Christ will be judged according to their works done in Christ for rewards. Those who die without Christ will go to the great white throne judgment where they'll be judged for their evil, sinful works that they did with no covering, no one to stand in the place for them to meet God in confrontation. As they sing this last song, if, if, if that's you and you need to give your heart back to the Lord, I invite you to do that before you leave today. If you would like to come forward for prayer, we will be available up front to pray with and for you. And um, again, I would just say, do not leave without having that dealt with. Do not leave unprepared to meet God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you, Father, that you are a loving God who is long-suffering, far beyond anything we're able to do. But Father, your holiness is also far beyond anything we're able to fathom, and you must deal with sin. It has to be confronted, Father God. For you to be holy and just, it has to be done. But Father, you love and you desire to have a people who would turn to you. You desire to be the Savior. You sent your Son to die on the cross that we, instead of meeting you in confrontation as enemies, Father. We meet Christ at the cross and confront our sin there, providing us the salvation, the forgiveness, the clothing of righteousness that we need. And Christ promised this, that all who receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Father, I pray that your spirit would move through our hearts this morning, that you would continue to lead us back to you, Father, but that also we would hear you and we would turn back. In Jesus' name, amen.